Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, September 18, 2016. The share ID for Friday, September 16th, is 9084. This morning, A Vision for You presents Step 10, Treating the Problem. The purpose of working steps one through nine is a personal transformation leading to a spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to overcome compulsive overeating. The big book provides clear-cut directions to these steps and its approach to recovery. The big book also gives us a very clear warning. If we do not keep in fit spiritual condition, we will relapse. If we do not continue to grow and enlarge our spiritual life, it will cause trouble in our mind. Resentments and fears and other disturbances will start showing up once more and begin to block us off from our higher power. Our mental obsession will return. We will become insane again. Step 10 captures the steps 4 through 9 process on a daily basis. It allows us to identify and have removed the spiritual sludge produced daily by our self-will. Joining us this morning to speak on Step 10, Treating the Problem, is Harlan G., a recovered compulsive overeater from Scottsdale, Arizona. Harlan is dedicated to sharing his insights to the 12 steps in the big book using his own personal experience as he carries this message of recovery. Welcome to the line, Harlan. Thank you very much, Leah. I'm so honored to be here. And as Leah told you, I'm Harlan G. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Scottsdale, Arizona. Can you hear me okay? Leah, can you hear me okay? Yes. I guess. Okay, great, great. Okay. Um, I came to this illness very, very uh, young in life, very early in life, not young in life, early in life. I think I had this illness from the second that I was born. Um, Food forever in my life has had a very unnatural place. And for me, from the earliest moments of my life, food was the topic, the subject, the area of concentration in my life, bar nothing else, uh, with nothing else that could come in front of it. Uh, My mother was a compulsive overeater. My father was a compulsive overeater. Is that why I'm one? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I am a compulsive overeater because I have a twist of the mind and an allergy of the body that makes food do something for me that it does not do for the normal temperate eater. My mother was mentally ill, and from the time I was born, I noticed very, very strongly that my mother had three distinct personalities. She could be, at a moment's notice, a screaming, raving lunatic. She could be at a moment, she could just breathe in air. She could suck air out of the atmosphere and become a three-year-old, like a toddler, sitting there like a little child. And then she could be sucking in a little more air and she could be a completely normal, well-read, well-informed human being, but you never knew what you were going to get when, you never knew how long it was going to last, and I spent my entire life 
doing everything I could, being nice to her, being mean to her, being abusive to her, being whatever it was, to try to control her to be that normal person all the time. And I was an utter failure, of course, because there's no way I can overcome a mental illness and there's no way I can overcome my own eating disorder. My father was 54 years old on the day that I was born. My father walked out of Europe not during World War II, but before World War II in 1914. He walked out of Europe as the sole survivor of murder and mayhem that happened in his area of Russia where his parents, grandparents on both sides, aunts, uncles, cousins, nieces and nephews from age zero to age six years old were obliterated off the face of the earth in an attack on their family's home that happened on a Saturday night close to Easter Sunday. These people were obliterated off the face of the earth through murder and mayhem that sprung out of the deepest hatred imaginable. He was the sole survivor and he did not want to live in this world. He did not see the point of living in this world. And my mother did not want to live in this world either, and they passed this to me. My, I became, at age three or four, my mother's husband and my father's wife. They, I don't mean in a sexual sense at all. What I mean here is they would speak through me as a conduit of information because they couldn't get along at all. They would speak to each other with pots and pans flying through the air and insults that you wouldn't, you wouldn't hurl at your worst enemy. And my mother would say to me just about every day of my life, I hate your father. The only reason I live here is because of you. And my father would come home from work and say, I hate your mother. The only reason I live here is because of you. And I'm four years old watching television, hoping against hope that Yogi Bear and Boo Boo Bear get away with the picnic basket because Ranger Smith is coming around the corner and I don't want them to get caught. There was one time in my family when it was all quiet on the Western Front, when the guns of Navarone were silenced, and the only time that my family would be at armistice would be when there was massive, and I mean massive amounts of food on the table, and everybody in the family was gorging themselves on food, and that is when it got quiet in our family, and that was probably the only time that it was quiet in our family. I have very distinct memories, very distinct memories of people screaming and yelling at my mother and father when I was as young as three and four and five years old. And they would scream at my parents about why are they letting me eat chocolate chip cookies? Why are they letting me eat pie or cake or whatever it was when I'm getting so fat at such a young age? And I have very vivid memories from age five and six and seven on of people at that age screaming directly at me and yelling at me, sometimes hitting me, sometimes throwing me down, always scaring the daylights out of me, making me pee my pants, making me extremely uncomfortable, screaming at me to please be thin. And they would say things to me like, don't eat so much, you'll feel better. And I found out that they were right. Because when I don't eat so much, I do feel better. I feel anger better. I feel fear better. I feel like killing myself better. I feel crushes on girls better. 
I feel all these things much better when I'm not eating, and these feelings would go off in my gut like a Roman candle on the 4th of July. And in spite of every ounce of my being trying to acquiesce to the demands of the people screaming at me to not eat so much, the only respite I found from the extreme embarrassment and pain was in a chocolate chip cookie. And for about seven seconds, I would feel fantastic. And then I would eat a second cookie and a third and a tenth and a thirtieth. The only time I ate one cookie was when it was the last cookie that I could get my hands on from age zero. Cookies did something for me, for me, that made life bearable. And the world looked at me when I was a child and looked at me as an adult and wondered, why does he eat so much? And I looked at the world and I wondered, why don't they eat so much? What Lake Michigan amount of willpower were they issued and why wasn't I in line to get it too? Where in the world did they get the willpower to sit in a restaurant and have a spoonful of ice cream, let the rest of it melt while they held a conversation, and I'm sitting there looking at this ice cream and saying, eat the damn ice cream already, or I'm going to stick that knife in your eye. Not really, but you get the picture. Where did they learn this? How did this happen? And what do I have to do to affect this? And from the moment I was a child, everything I ever wanted to be was thin, but everything I ever wanted to do was eat. I remember distinctly at age nine, nine years old, I went to Dr. Jacobson on the corner of Milwaukee and Devon Avenue in Chicago. I'm a north side Chicago and West Rogers Park boy, Mather High School in Chicago, north side. And I went to Dr. Jacobson with my mother. And he screamed at my mother in Yiddish and my mother screamed back at him in Yiddish. And the next thing I knew, I was on diet pills heavy-duty amphetamines at nine years old, I can still remember distinctly the temples of my head just going, ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. And you sleep about 15 minutes a month, uh, and you, but you don't eat. Oh, you don't eat. Eating is the last thing on your mind. But when those pills wore off, it was like coming down on a roller coaster with no car. You just fell. You just plummeted to the earth. And when you landed, I would eat Illinois and some of Wisconsin. And I remember, now I'm, a, I'm an eater. I'm not a fighter. I'm an eater. I'm a peaceful person. Give me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and I'm good with whatever you want. I remember I was getting in fist fights at school. I remember. I, was, I, I get accused of this now. I would say the same thing 300 times, and I'm in my head saying to myself, stop, stop, you've already said this 300 times. And I just couldn't stop my mouth from going, and I couldn't listen to what anyone was saying. It was like when the teacher would talk or people would talk, it was like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. 
I couldn't hear anything that was being said. And those pills took me out of the ball game, but I lost weight. And then when I was 10, they started coming out with some of the um, analysis of what these pills, these amphetamines were doing to people. So they switched me from a big pink pill to smaller blue pills. And instead of taking them three times a day, I took them four times a day with exactly the same result. This is when I was nine and ten years old, and these were through a physician's prescription. I did everything I could to lose weight. Lose weight with age. Some of you that are my age remember those little candies that you were supposed to eat to lose weight. Lose weight with AIDS, A-Y-D-S. Well, you couldn't market that product today, could you? Lose weight with, I think it was Metrical. And then I became a Tops king. In high school, I joined Tops. I don't think Tops is around anymore. Uh, I think that was strictly a Midwestern kind of thing. Roseanne actually in her story said that if there had been Tops in the phone book in Los Angeles, that we wouldn't, there wouldn't be an Overeaters Anonymous today. So thank God it wasn't in there. And I lost a lot of weight dieting, but of course I put it all back on. And I became, as a teenager, a Weight Watchers king as well. I lost a lot of weight. I put it all back on. I was 335 pounds as a senior in high school. This disease at an early age wreaked havoc on my life, and I wondered if life was worth living. Because remember, I'm sitting at the feet of the master who is telling me every single day that he didn't want to live in this world, that he saw no point. Now, I've had three, count them, three psychiatrists tell me that dad was post-traumatic stress disorder because I didn't know it at that time and it wouldn't have made a difference. There was nothing we could have done. But my father could be walking down Lawrence Avenue in Chicago. He could be walking down Devon Avenue in Chicago. He could smell something. He could hear something. He could just experience something and he would burst into tears and it would be very hard for him to stand up. If you've never seen your dad cry, I've seen my dad cry thousands of times. And these memories, the sounds, the screaming, the bullets, the smell of death, the smell of the guns would come back to him and he wouldn't be able to control himself. He, his emotions would overtake him and he would be unconsolable. And I tried to console him. I tried to make him happy. And he would hold my face in his hands and he would kiss me in a circle all around my face and say, the only reason I survived is so you could be born in America. And that's the best thing to be, is an American. And he would say, don't ever forget it, my son. My son means my son. Don't ever forget that that's the best thing you could be. And I felt guilty because all these people had to die so I could be an American. Is that why I'm a compulsive overeater? No. Nope. But that's part of my story. This disease made me wonder what series of felonies had I committed neonatally that would have condemned me to a life that is different from every life I saw around me. The boys I saw around me were thin and they could run and they could jump 
and girls would giggle when they would come around and flip their hair and touch them and want to be near them and sit next to them and pass notes to them. But never me. Never me. And I couldn't look like them. I couldn't wear the clothes they, look, they wore. In the 60s, everything was skin tight and straight as an arrow. If you're on the line or you're listening on the recording and you remember the 60s, everything was skin tight and straight as an arrow. The 70s was the bell bottoms and the different things, but in the 60s, everything was skin tight. And, of course, that was not going to be me. I've had two stomachs from the time I was born. I remember distinctly as a, as a child in, in day camp, somebody looking at me and saying, you have scratches on your belly. Those weren't scratches. They were stretch marks. I've had stretch marks on my stomach and stretch marks on my shoulder and stretch marks on my arms and stretch marks on my back from the time I was about 10 years old. And also something was happening in my life as well. My parents were dying. As I told you at the beginning, my father was 54 years old when I was born. And I remember, I don't have cousins and aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters. and I don't have that. So everything that needed to be done, I had to do. I remember taking Dad to the oncologist's office when I was 17 years old. And I remember going to Edgewater Hospital and the oncologist told me, at 17, your dad has about six to seven years. And dad died about seven years to the day of that diagnosis. My mom died when I was 22. My mom died in the throes of this illness. She had to have her leg amputated because of her eating. Her diabetes gained green set in. She was on dialysis, which was primitive and brutal at that time. And the shunts would get infected, and it was brutal. And no matter what the snowstorm, no matter what the weather, she had to get to that hospital to have dialysis no matter what. When I was 22, my mom died. When I was 24, my dad died. But I was already out of control to the nth degree. My life was a absolute mess. I'm gaining weight in leaps and bounds. I was 335 pounds in high school. By the time I was a junior in college, I was probably 550 pounds. And by the time they went, and, and then later, I was up to 700 pounds. Now, you, you may be on the line this morning saying, well, my God, I never weighed those amounts. I never, I never weighed 500 pounds. I never weighed 600 pounds. I'm not so bad. I'm going to assume something. You got your own hell. You stuck your head in the toilet. You were bulimic, you were anorexic, you had your hell or you wouldn't be on the line this morning because this disease is mind over matter. It doesn't mind killing you and you don't matter. This is a miro hazach, means a murderous 
thing, a murderous illness. And it doesn't have any mercy. My life was out of control. I lied when the truth would have served me better. My food habit, not my hooker habit, not my cocaine habit, not my heroin habit, not my gambling habit, my food habit in the 1970s was 100 to $150 a day. My thighs are in different zip codes. My pants wear out at the thighs because of the rubbing together. I wasn't wearing underpants. I was wearing towels shoved between layers of slab to keep the skin from rubbing together to produce that contact dermatitis, which is so pleasurable. The pain is like somebody pouring lighter fluid on your skin and setting it on fire. And the pus used to run out of my skin. And I couldn't sleep in a bed and breathe. I had to sleep in a chair. And because I was sleeping in a chair, fluid would accumulate in my lower ankles, my cankles. I didn't have ankles. Cankles. And would swell. And I would get discoloration that I have to this day. And my veins, I have varicose veins in my, in my ankles today. And the pus used to run out from ulcers that were nickel and dime and penny size ulcers in the back of my legs. And I couldn't wear socks because they would get soaked from the pus. And I couldn't put the socks on because of the swelling. It would dig into my skin. The physical pain was so tremendous that I wouldn't have wished it on my worst enemy. I woke up in pain. Everything I did was painful. I broke furniture. People would laugh at me in public places. Children would point at me. Men and women would laugh at me. I've had people come up to me that I didn't even know and take food off my plate, off my table in a restaurant and give it to the busboy and say, he doesn't need this. I've had people come up to me many times and slap my stomach and ask me, when's the baby due? Is it a hippo or an elephant? And I had to pretend that this didn't bother me. I have a distinct memory of going to a a dentist in Chicago. I had a hot tooth and I had to go to an endodontist. I had to get root canal. And I remember very distinctly, the first thing he ever said to me, not was, hi, how are you, Mr. Grabowski? Hi, it's nice to see you. He looked up at me in the office and said, my God, how much do you weigh? He says, my God, what do you eat? He says, I'm afraid you're going to break my chair. And sure enough, after after they numbed me up, I broke his chair. He says, the chair only goes up to 500 pounds. He says, you weigh a lot more than 500 pounds. And I said, oh, because I was numb. No, I don't. I was lying. Of course I weighed over 500 pounds. Who was I kidding? I was roughly the size of an adolescent hippopotamus. And I owed him $62 after he screamed and yelled at me. I wasn't going to pay him the $62 that I owed him for the visit until I had to make my ninth step amends. And I went back and I paid that $62 to his daughter who, ran, who was there at the practice, but he had died 
was one of the greatest moments of my life. One day maybe I'll do a ninth step special uh, cast or a special edition and I'll talk more about that. My mom died in 1976. As I told you, my father died in 1978. My life was a mess. I'm not even going to talk about all the toilets I broke. I'm not going to talk a lot about the furniture that I broke. I'm not going to talk about the spirit to live that I broke. I'm not going to talk about the fact that death was welcomed in my life by me. I welcomed death. I begged for death. I was absolutely ravaged by this illness in every way that you can ravage a human being. Now, you can believe whatever you want to believe, whatever God you want to believe in, whatever whatever higher power you want to believe in. And if you are an atheist, you are welcome here and you can recover. If you are an agnostic, you can recover and you are welcome here. I am a believer that my dad held great sway with God Almighty. And I know that my dad is in heaven because he certainly lived hell on earth. My mother died in 76, and the last conversation I had with my mother was, please, my son, find a way not to eat so much. The last conversation I had with my father was in November of 1978. Somebody's unmuted. Was in 1978. In November, it was freezing cold. I went to see him. I knew this was it. I knew that he would die that day or the next day. He had lung cancer that had metastasized and spread all through his body. My dad was a very heavy smoker, Chesterfield, king size, no filter. And he said to me, when you were born, I thought you'd be president of the United States. He thought, he said, I thought that you would be somebody special. He said, I thought that, well, we had great hope for you. I thought that you'd be an executive or president or senator or something. Like the Godfather with Michael Corleone, Senator Corleone. But my father had high hopes for me. And he said, please find a way not to eat so much. In Yiddish, he said to me that food was an unglick in your life. An unglick is a is a bad, it really means bad luck. Unglick means bad luck. But what it means is it's a curse in your life. Now, you can believe whatever you want to believe, but my mother and father moved heaven and earth to try to help me find a way not to eat so much. And it wasn't more than several weeks after Dad died, in February of 1979, that two wonderful people pushed their way past the pizza boxes, pushed their way past the Reese's peanut butter cup wrappers and the Kit Kat bar wrappers in my filthy, dirty, mouse-ridden, cockroach-ridden apartment where the rent hadn't been paid because I needed the money for food, where my car had been repossessed twice for non-payments, where I had been driving for a long time with no auto insurance and no fiscal responsibility to cover any damage I might have done as a driver. They pushed their way past these things and made me go to a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous in Skokie, Illinois, at the Orchard Mental Health Center on February 2nd, 
1979. You believe whatever you want to believe, but I believe that my dad held great sway and God moved in and sent people to help save my life. Now, I was not a fireball of willingness. I would eat my way to the meetings. I would pray for a Russian airstrike during the meetings, and I would eat my way home. But I had a goal because I owed these people thousands and thousands of dollars. And I went. And I met people. And I got exposed to some thinking that didn't quite make sense to me. And I left OA. Many of you have done that too. You know, I'm here a long time. I'm here 37 years. I've yet to meet the person that came in, sat down, and just got it. Most of us who get it are people who have come in and left and come in and left, and then all of a sudden we get it because we get the gift of desperation. G-O-D, the gift of desperation. And I left OA for a little while, and I came back. And I left again, and I came back. And there were some things that happened between my second and third time in OA, and I know that maybe some of you are responsible because you snuck some things into this book that were not there before. I know they weren't there before because I didn't hear them or see them, and I know some of you came in and wrote some things in my book, and I thank you for that. Somebody's unmuted doing dishes. Harlan, the, sorry yeah. to interrupt you. Let's. I'm going to mute the line. Come, Would you? Yes, please press star one to so come I'm back. Gonna have to, okay, that's fine. Can you hear me okay, Leah? Welcome back. Okay, good. I saw some things in this magical blue book called Alcoholics Anonymous that I had never seen before. And when I came back, I was 700 pounds. On my medical records that the cardiologist has today, it is written in large capital letters at the bottom in handwriting with a yellow marker on it where it's got numbers of what I weigh and it says, this is no mistake this man is huge, and it's got three U's in huge. It, they wanted to make sure that somebody reading those records would make no mistake that these weights and these numbers were real. Now, what was different about what you put in my book? The first thing I noticed, the very first thing I noticed was on page 58. And on page 58 of the book Alcoholics Anonymous, it says very, very plainly and very simply, you snuck this in my book, you guys, and what it says very simply is this. If you want, what, if you've decided, decided means step three. The step three is a decision and a beginning. If you've decided you want what we have, and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. What is it that we seem to have here? 
and I came in and I thought to myself, what they have in Overeaters Anonymous are people that are not eating compulsively. Wrong. They have people that are not eating compulsively at Weight Watchers. They have people that are not eating compulsively at McDonald's. They have people that are not eating compulsively at God knows where you're going today. What we have here are compulsive overeaters not eating compulsively, and they are doing so happily. That they're not swinging from their chandeliers, stark raving abstinence. And that's what you see in a lot of OA meetings today. You have people that are swinging from the chandeliers on a dry drunk from food because they're dieting with group support, and that's not what we have. What we have are people not eating compulsively, hopefully we have it, and doing so happily. And then it says, you're willing to go to any length to get it. What am I willing to do? So I ask people that come to me and say, will you sponsor me? And I say to them, is there anything you won't do to recover? Because if there's anything you won't do to recover, then we're wasting our time. Then you are ready to take certain steps. I got to be willing to do this because this is not a program for people who need it. This is not a program for people who want it. This is a program for people who do it. This is an action program. There's no chapter into thinking. There's no chapter into needing or wanting. My God, if this was a program for people who needed it or wanted it, there'd be 20,000 people at your next meeting. Now, I also noticed something else that happened here, and this was something that I struggled with a lot. The main, oh, excuse me, page 45 the thesis line of the big book. The thesis line of the big book is on page 45. It simply says, well, that's exactly what this book is about. Here's the thesis line. It says, its main object is to enable you to find a power, capitalized God, greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. The main object of this book is to help me find a power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. And then I came to find out something that I did not know, that I was going to have to come to grips with a relationship with a power greater than myself, and that posed great difficulty for me. Now, I know I'm probably the only one on this line, and I'm probably the only one in OA that has a lot of difficulty with this concept of God. If you read through Bill's story, he struggles with this too, so maybe it's him and me. But I don't know if any of you struggle with this, but I sure did, because God didn't bring me a pony, and God didn't bring me what I wanted. Girls, I wanted to be the left fielder for the Cubs. I wanted to be the quarterback for the Bears. Those things didn't happen in my life. I didn't get what I wanted. <laughs> Poor me. I didn't get everything I wanted handed to me on a silver platter. So God sucked. That's where my mind went. 
And I would go to synagogue as a kid, and it meant nothing to me. I hated it. Excuse me. I caught the allergies again. Anyway, I would go to synagogue, and I would look at some of these people, and I would think, those people are more religious than me. God certainly holds them in great favor. But since I yelled F you at my mother, and since I've ridden my bike on Saturday, and I've eaten unkosher food, I am doomed to a godless life, and God sucks, and I want what I want, and I want it now, or I want everybody dead. And that didn't happen. So I was going to have to come to grips with this idea of a power greater than myself. And I had to do a job description of that higher power. And I had to come to the conclusion that all I needed to know about God was two things. Now listen, today is Sunday. Yesterday was Saturday. This weekend has been packed with theologians and clergymen and poets and writers and musicians and his, historians and all manner of, of, of people who are going to wonder what God is and what God is not. For me, there's two things I need to know about God. Number one, there is one. And number two, it's not me. There is one. And it's not me. And based on that, I can recover. Now, there's some other things in here that were quite startling to me because I am not a direction follower. I'm from Chicago. 1976, I got a traffic ticket on Lakeshore Drive and Ohio Street. I was doing 55 in a 45 zone. And it's the only traffic ticket I've ever gotten up to this date. So what did I do? Did I go down and say to the judge, I'm sorry? Nope. I went to the barber shop and I made the right connections and I took some money out of my wallet. And when I went before the judge on that ticket, he said, how do you plead? I said, not guilty. He said, case dismissed. I wanted to do things the Chicago way. Doesn't work here. You know, there's people on this line, I bet, that are no different than me and that we fantasize about a magic pill that we could take to instantly be catapulted into recovery. If I had the pill, I wouldn't give it to you. Not because I'm mean, not because I'm nasty or an ogre. I wouldn't give it to you because I wouldn't want you to miss a minute of the joy and the wonderment of what this is. And I was going to have to do it just like everybody else was going to have to do it. And that made me mad. But on page XX of the big book, in the forward to the second edition, I get all the information I need. It says very, very simply on page XX of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in the foreword to the second edition, it very simply says, of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried. Now, what does that mean, they really tried? They didn't try to diet with group support. They didn't try to just use the tools. They didn't just try to read something or hear something in a meeting that would help them stay sober. They actually did the work. 
80% got sober at once. Bang, 50 out of 100 got sober at once and remained that way. That's a heavy sentence there. That's better than any warranty I've ever gotten on any product I've ever bought in my life. 25% sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. Other thousands came to a few AA meetings and at first decided they didn't want the program, but great numbers of these, about two or three, began to return as time passed. Now, that's 75% recovery rate. 75% recovery rate. I've traveled this country for years doing big book studies. I've been as far north as Anchorage, Wasilla, Alaska. I've been as far southeast as Boca Raton, Florida. I've been as far northeast as Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Almost Cape Cod. I forgot the name of the little town there. I want to say Waltham, but it's not Waltham. It's something else. Anyway. And I've been as far southwest as San Diego, California. And I've done many, many retreats. Some of you on the line right now have heard me. I didn't, we can't talk about 75% recovery. We can't talk about 50% recovery. We can't talk about 10% recovery. We can't talk about 5% recovery in Overeaters Anonymous today. We are lucky if we are recovering at one and a half, two percent in OA. Why? Because we keep in our zeal to overthink and overcomplicate things. We try to overdo things and come up with other methods and other things when the solution is right in our hands in the blue book called Alcoholics Anonymous. And this is the greatest health epidemic that the world has ever seen is the obesity rates today in our world. It pales the starvation of the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. In 1995, in the United States of America, not Uganda, not Mongolia, not whatever, in the United States of America, there is a generation of children born that have a shorter life expectancy than their parents with everything we know? Really? Really? I live across the street from a high school. Thank God they can't put you in jail for what you're thinking. But I live across the street from a high school in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I see kids going into that high school that are 200 and 250 and 300 pounds and my heart is breaking. I know the hell that they're going to go through and are going through. Now, I found something out in my travels, and I found something out in working this program. And this is information that was very revolutionary to me. I just looked at the clock. I better hurry up. Leah's going to get mad at me. This is the information that I found out. Food to the compulsive overeater is never the problem. I'll say that again. Food to the compulsive overeater 
is never the problem. Food is the solution to the problem. What is the problem? If food is not the problem, what is the problem? The problem is the buildup of everyday, normal, human emotion. All human beings have emotions. Anger, boredom, happiness, sadness, jealousy, guilt, shame, lust, remorse. All human beings have these emotions. And in a normal human being, these emotions will dissipate effectively through simple action that has nothing to do with food. They can walk the dog, go to the gym, make love, have a glass of wine, uh, play with the cat, watch their favorite movie. Whatever they need to do, these emotions that are normal to all humans will fall below a toxic line with very simple non-food-related action. Not so with me. When these levels of emotion are within me, there is a part of my brain on the emotional side that will, that will call the mental twist. The mental twist and the mental blank spot, my built-in forgetter is the mental blank spot, are in the emotional side of my brain. And when these emotions are causing me pain, and the pain of not eating is searing, unrelenting, it is fatal, it is debilitating, the pain of not eating is so overwhelming that even though I admit that it's injurious to eat Oreo cookies, I will eat them anyway in search of a relief to the intenable searing pain of not eating. And I will tell myself that this time I'm only going to eat two Oreo cookies, that this time it's going to be somehow different, that this time I deserve an Oreo cookie because, after all, I haven't had one for 20 minutes. And I deserve an Oreo cookie because she's a witch and he's not going to treat me that way and F them anyway and I don't care. Screw it. I'm going to eat an Oreo cookie. And for about nine seconds, I feel great. But then what happens? Because in the brain, there's also the intelligence side of the brain that said to me, no, 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 don't eat the Oreo cookie. Come on, you've been divorced for six years. You'd like to look good. You'd like to find a girlfriend one day. You'd like to get married again. Living alone sucks. If you eat these, oh, he's eating the Oreo cookies. Because any time there's a conflict between the emotional side of the brain and the intelligent side of the brain, the emotional side of the brain will win in a walk. And I eat the cookie, as I just said. And I will feel better for about seven seconds. And then what happens? Once I have that in my body, the physical allergy takes over. 
and the physical allergy makes it absolutely impossible for me to stop eating the Oreo cookies. And I eat more than I had intended. And the more of them I eat, the more I want. And the more I want, the more I eat, the more I eat, the more I want, and the more I eat, the more I want. And it's just endless. So it begs the question, what am I to do? I am powerless over food because my life and my, and not because, my, and, and my life is unmanageable. So what am I going to do about that now? What if I could find a way to live where my mind does not lock in on that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating the food? What if I could find a way to live where I already feel better and the cookies are not something that my brain locks in on? And the process of bringing a power greater than myself into the equation is called recovery. And that's what this is all about, Charlie Brown. This is about substituting the effect of the food for the effect of the spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. And in doing so, the urge to eat is gone. The reason that I don't eat Kit Kat bars today is because I don't want to. My brain is not locked in on that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating a Kit Kat bar. So you may be wondering, when is this guy going to start talking about step 10 right now? Because we're going to blow the doors off two misconceptions about step 10 this morning, and I got to get to it because I'm running way later than I thought I was. I got to look at the clock more later when I do these. I apologize for that. I get sidetrack too easily. Let's go to page 84, the middle of 84, because if there's anything I've learned about my recovery, it's that I am going to inventory. And I have to keep in fit spiritual condition. And one of the most remarkable tools, one of the most remarkable things is a step. And the step is step 10, which is very misunderstood. Page 84. This thought brings us to step 10, which suggests we continue to take personal inventory and continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along. We vigorously commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past. Let's blow the doors off the first misconception about step 10. And the biggest misconception about step 10 is that you start doing it after you've completed nine. Wrong. It says very simply, we vigorously commenced. That means we actively began this way of living as we cleaned up the past. What steps do we use to clean up the past? Eight and nine. So it's a very fast process. Four, five, six, seven. Shouldn't take very long. And then as soon as I'm starting on 8 and 9, I'm doing 10. Because what's going to happen when I start going about making amends, paying back money, facing people that I've harmed? What's going to come up? Emotions. Emotions are going to come up. And as those emotions come up, they will demand resolution. And the demand for a resolution is going to come in the form of me looking down the business end of a damn Kit Kat bar. Instead, I can do this step and lower the level of these emotions. 
in misconception one, we begin step 10 as soon as we begin eight and nine. We have entered the world of the spirit. Spirit is capitalized. That's God. Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. The symbol of Alcoholics Anonymous is the triangle encased in the circle. The triangle represents unity, service, and a base of recovery. The circle represents perpetuity. She wouldn't mind me telling you this story, but my friend in New Jersey, Naomi, came up to me. I did a retreat in New Jersey a number of years ago, and she came up to me on Saturday at lunch, and she said, when I'm done with my steps, can I call you? And I said, nope. And she looked at me like I had three heads. And I said, when you are done with your steps, you'll be dead. As long as I'm alive, I'm going to be working steps. It should continue for our lifetime. I'm not the first one to notice this or say it or talk about it, but invariably when people call me and say they're eating and I suggest they work the steps, they say, oh, I've already worked them. And I say to them, if that was the case, we wouldn't be having this conversation now. At some point you stop because the, the food going in the mouth is not the beginning of the relapse. The food going in the mouth is the end result of the cessation of action of these steps. Want me to say that again? Okay, I will. The food going in the mouth is not the beginning of the relapse. The beginning of the relapse is the cessation of these actions which keep the emotions at bay and keep the, the level of emotion below a certain level. And when I stop working the steps, all of a sudden, my emotions are through the ceiling. My emotional brain will demand resolution to the unbelievable pain in my life that comes about as the result of not eating. Not eating is too painful for me to bear. It should continue for our lifetime. Here is the very simple instruction. Very, very simple instruction. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. What step did we use to deal with selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear? It says continue, and then it says selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. That's step, that's right, step four. When these things crop up, not if, not should they, not when they or might, it says when these things crop up, it is a certainty because no matter how evolved my recovery gets, I will never rise above the level of a human being. And as a human being, I'm going to want to be somebody I'm not. I'm going to want a, 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 a Rolls Royce or I'm going to want to kiss that girl or I'm going to want to live in that house or whatever. And the emotions will build. So no matter how evolved my recovery gets, 
I will never rise above the level of a human being. When these things crop up, page 84, we ask God at once to remove them. What two steps did we use to ask God at once to remove our defects of character? That's right, six and seven. So I've done four, six, and seven. Now it says we discuss them with someone immediately. What step did we use? It doesn't sound. Here's the second misconception. The second misconception about step 10 is that it parrots step 11 in that it's in the morning and at night. We don't wait till the night or the morning. We do it immediately. Now, I can hear real good. I hear some of you saying, you don't understand. I've got a busy job. I don't care if you're a brain surgeon with a hobby of juggling chainsaws. In every office building, every building in this country, there are cathedrals for this type of activity. Some are labeled men and some are labeled women. It is easier to recover today than it's ever been. Bill Wilson didn't have a cell phone. I can go into a men's room and I can make a call to my sponsor or somebody in my God squad. My God squad are people that I can call that I can do a 10th step with and they're adept at pointing out my, my part in things. So we discuss them with someone immediately, not at night or in the morning, immediately. That's the second misconception that we've blown the doors off. And that's, what step do we use for that? Five. So, so far we've done four, six, seven, four, five, six, seven, and make amends quickly quickly if we've harmed anyone, steps eight and nine. So in this little half paragraph, we have done four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. Let's see where we go from there. Then we resolutely, what does resolutely mean? With resolve, with purpose. We resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help, step 12. Love and tolerance of others is our code. So in this little half paragraph, we've done four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. We're doing 10 and 12. I challenge you to do four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, and 12, five, six, and seven times a day and eat Kit Kat bars, you can't do it. You can't, unless you want to, unless you're suicidal. You can't do it. Because your emotions will not build to that level. Is there anyone on the line right now that could unmute themselves and let's do a quick 10-step call? I would prefer someone that's at least familiar with my way of doing it, someone that I've spoken to before. Hi, it's, Vicky from hi. Ohio. Who is? Vicky from Ohio. Vicky, how are you? Well, I'm standing in a grocery store. Okay, you're standing <laughs> in the grocery store. What's the first defect of character jumping to the surface in the grocery store there? Um, loneliness. Well, loneliness is, is one thing, but let's go to selfishness. Okay, what's the next one? Um, oh, I'm so sorry. I can't remember. Please prompt me. Dishonesty. What's the nature of the dishonesty here? 
in the grocery store. Uh huh. That I can have anything I want. Correct. What's the resentment? What's the anger? My body won't take it. Your body won't take it. What's the fear? I can't get by without strawberries. Correct. And the truth is you can. Let's ask God to remove these defects right now. In your way, ask God to remove the defect. Let me know when you're done. I'm done. You're done. Why should we assume he's removed them? Because he said he would. In six and seven, and he also loves you. He adores you. Okay? We're going to discuss them with someone immediately. You've already done that. And make amends quickly if you've harmed anyone. doesn't sound like you've harmed anyone there. And then we're going to resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. You're going to make an outreach call and mention nothing of this, and you're just going to try to be helpful to a newcomer, okay? Yay, God. So thanks, thanks for giving me the call. Thank you. For, it's good Thank to hear you. your voice. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Vicki. Love and tolerance of others is our code. It's that quick. It's that quick. It's not anything that's overcomplicated. There's no writing involved. You don't have to stand on your head. You don't have to juggle bowling balls. This is as quick as they can go. We have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. Bottom of 84. This is the most peaceful, the most productive way to live. The illness is exhausting. I'm fighting everything and everyone. I'm fighting the world. I'm trying to control. Somebody's unmuted. I'm fighting the world. I'm trying to fight everything. I'm trying to control everything because if I'm not steering, we're going to certainly go over the edge or something. There's no trust in me of God at all in this illness. Listen to what it's saying to you after you've done this. We have ceased fighting anything or anyone, dash, even alcohol, for by this time, sanity will have returned. And it's calling me back to step two. And if you've been around me, if you know me, you know that my mantra is that the two most underutilized steps are two and ten. And where you see people struggling, invariably they are unusing, or unusing, that's not a word. They're not using two and ten. Two and ten. The most misunderstood steps, three and four. The most underutilized steps, two and ten. If tempted, we recoil as if from a hot flame. I simply don't want the food. It is not anything at all that I want to use. I don't want to use the food at all, okay? We react sanely and normally, and we will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. These are the most beautiful promises, the step 10 promises. I love these promises. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We're not fighting it. Neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we have been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. Is the food the problem? No. What is the problem? 
The problem is the buildup of everyday normal human emotion. And when we do step 10, we're doing 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 12. And when we do that step continuously, the problem the buildup of emotions has subsided to the point where food, excess food, is the last thing on my mind. Do this step. Test me. Find me wrong. Find me wrong. It does not exist for us, top of 85. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. I'm not cocky nor am I afraid because I feel God with me all the time. I know God is here. I don't have to think, is he here? I'm in constant companionship with him. Does that mean I don't have to work at that? I have to work at it all the time. That is our experience. This, that is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. I can't do one ten step a month and think I'm in fit spiritual condition. I'll be looking down the business end of a Kit Kat bar before I can say one, two, three. Because the buildup of human emotions is unrelenting in its demand for resolution. And the resolution will be food. Because food does something for me, not to me, for me, that it does not do for the normal temperate eater. Food gives me an instant sense of ease and comfort. Continuing, it is easy to let up on the spiritual program of action, not thinking, but of action, and rest on our laurels. We are headed for trouble if we do, for alcohol is a subtle foe. What's the real subtle foe here? The buildup of emotion. We are not cured of alcoholism. I am recovered, but I am not cured. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Every day, now note that, every day, not some days, not just on the weekdays or on the weekends or at the Tuesday meeting, every day is a day when we must, here's one of those must, carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. I don't understand where some of the thinking in OA comes from. Well, I'm just going to do this at this time, or I'm just going to do this on those days. I have to do this every day. There's no day that I'm alive that I don't have to do this. And here is what it says. Here's my prayer. I say this prayer a million times a day. How can I best serve thee? Thy will not mine be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. How can I best serve thee? Thy will not mine be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. We can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It is the proper use of the will. Much has already been said about receiving strength, inspiration, and direction from him, him is capitalized, who has all knowledge and power. If we have carefully followed directions, not suggestions, not nourishkite. Nourishkite is a Yiddish word for foolishness, not nourishkite, not mishagas. That's craziness. When I when they're not when I when they say directions, what they mean is what's in the big book. Not what's in something else. Not some form downloaded on the internet. 
What they mean is doing the step according to the directions. We have begun to sense the flow of his spirit, capitalized God, into us. To some extent, we have become God conscious. We have begun this vital, we have begun to develop this vital sixth sense. Taste, sight, hearing, touch. These are senses, smell. These are senses. The sixth sense is the awareness of the higher power, whatever it is you choose to call that power. But we must go further, and that means more action. Now, I'm going to do one more 10-step call. Do I have Julie R. on the line, perhaps? Julie, are you here? Hi, Harlan. Yes. Hi, you're here. Okay, Julie. All right. Now, we're going to do a quick 10-step call. Julie has just called me, and something is wrong in her life. Somebody zigged when they should have zigged. What's up, Jewel? I just have a resentment about um, I have a huge audit coming up, and people are not following the protocol. <gasps> They're not following Julie's script. All right, so what's the first defective character jumping to the surface in this disturbance with the audit? Well, my selfishness. Oh, they, that selfishness means the script, doesn't it? Yeah, they're not doing what I want. Yeah, they should be thrown in a fire. Okay, <laughs> what's the next one? Fear. Let's Some leave fear. fear to the end. What's okay, the next dishonest. one? It's dishonesty. dishonesty. What's the nature of the dishonesty here? Is that maybe I'm not um, training effectively, that oh. I'm not as good. Okay, maybe there's some part you have in this, too. And the other thing that we have to remember about people is not only are they not following our script, but they're not required to either because they have a God and it's not me. Resentment. That's the next one, right, Jules? Mm -hmm. Resentment. We resent them for this. Anger. What's the fear here? What's driving the bus? What's the fear? Is that I am not going to be perceived as good as I think I am. Mm, and then we've got that self-esteem thing going and that whole thing going there. So let's get, excuse me, when these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. In your way, Julie, would you please ask God to remove your defects and let me know when you're done? Okay. Okay. Let's assume he's removed them. Why should we assume that? Because my God is powerful, and he loves you, and he promised you in 6 and 7 that he would, didn't he? We mm -hmm. discussed him with someone immediately. You've already done that. And make amends quickly. So if you've harmed anybody there, if you were calling them names or you were yelling at them or something, go clean that up. If we've harmed anyone, then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. So I'll turn you loose, Julie, and I want you to go make your outreach call to someone that you can help. And I will talk to you later. Thanks, Julie. Thanks. Okay. Leah and everybody, this is as simple as it gets. You saw the call between me and Julie. You saw the call between me and Terry. It's not anything that's complicated. It's not anything that should take more than just a few minutes. Now, this is a very, very important step. There's no unimportant steps. But this is one that you use many, many times a day like others to keep the level of these emotions from building up to a level that is going to demand resolution. And before you know what hits you, you're going to be looking down the business end of a Kit Kat bar. I wish 
all of you recovery, I just want to throw one little reminder out there how wonderful it was to see you guys in Boston. Many of the visionaries were in Boston, and I got very strict promise from the people who are running the OA birthday in January that is going to be in Los Angeles, the LAX Hilton, that um, they're going to provide a room for us, the visionaries, just like the people in Boston did for us to do our thing. We had a little skit going. We had, we had a little fun going. They're going to provide us the same facility. If you would like information on the upcoming OA birthday, please go to OA birthday, one word, oabirthday.com, and I hope very sincerely to see you, many of you, in Los Angeles in January for the OA birthday. And I also believe that the Vision for You meetings is going to continue to be at the forefront of the renaissance of OA. This is the group that is the, the absolute vital part of the renaissance of what is restoring recovery back into these rooms. OA is, in, is, is shrinking, but uh, Vision is growing. I wonder why, because there's recovery here, and there are people here who are doing the deal, and I hope to see as many of you as is possible at the OA birthday, and with that, I will pass. Thanks. Thank you so much, Harlan, for your powerful, inspirational, and informative presentation this morning. Thank you. Your service is always greatly appreciated here on A Vision for You. Harlan's contact information will be offered at the conclusion at of this presentation, so stay tuned for that. And we'll now transition to question and answers. If you have a question for Harlan, you can press star 1 to unmute and identify yourself, please. Hi, this is Virginia. Um, I have a question of Bria Lippitt from Edmonton, Alberta. Virginia, Bria, who else did I hear? Carol G. Carol G., Jody EQ. Jody EQ. Anyone else? All right, let's Anne-Marie start. Anne Marie M. Anne Marie, hello. Hi. Okay. Virginia, let's start with you, please. Thank you for your service. Thank you, Helen. This is actually Andy W. from Virginia. Um, thank you. Um, I just wanted to say when you got to the 10 step part, Mm-hmm. I've noticed in my very in my very new part here in doing vision, which has given me great help. When in the process of calling someone, I seem to get a lot out of somebody saying back to me, kind of like the old way, like "Yeah, I felt that way," or they say something like with empathy. And um, and I'm wondering if I'm using that as my problem, because. Because when I get with a more recovered member who just like cuts to the chase, they just go, okay, what's wrong with you here? Selfishness, dishonesty, blah, blah, blah. I'm so emotional, I feel like, you know, I feel, it feels like an accusation. I, I've got a wonderful husband, and he happens to be logical too. Um, but I tend to love the empathy first. And, um, I'm, you know, it seems like I need that validation. But when I get with a more recovered member, I'm wondering if I'm just a slacker who needs some validation. <laughs> So I wondered if you possibly could comment on that or if maybe I'll get better when I go through the steps. Thank you so much, and I'll be here. 
Well, all those things are true. You will get better as you go through the steps. But I'm going to tell you that the empathy part of it is really not helping us. Uh, we're human beings, yes, and, 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 and there are times to empathize. This is life or death. A Kit Kat bar, uh, a Baby Ruth bar, will kill you whether you're right or wrong. A Baby Ruth bar will kill you and get your toes and feet amputated and your leg amputated whether your anger is justified, not justified, it doesn't matter. So a person who's helping you that I will gravitate to, part of my God squad, is the person who gets to my part of it. Somebody who I call up and I say, gosh, I have a resentment against uh, Joe Blow. And they say, oh, yeah, I've had the same problem. He really is a jerk. It's not you. It's him. That's not helping me. That may be what I want to hear. That may be what I love hearing. And it is pablum. That's a very good description of it, Ann. But the bottom line is that's not helping me. I've got to get to my part to lower the level of these emotions so that they will not demand resolution in the form of a baby roof bar. So I would call the people who get to the step and avoid calling some of the ones who don't because this is life or death. I hope that answers it. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Ann. Our next question about step 10 comes from Bria L. Um, yeah, hi. Uh, um, I, I do, uh, I kind of had a question for you on step 10, but um, um, it might not, it might not actually be appropriate. But um, anyways, um, I was just wondering, what, what do you do, Harlan, when, I don't know, if during early recovery, um, say when you were put in into the, kind of a dangerous situation, like I'm thinking like, um, like a restaurant where you had to go uh, like celebrate a birthday or something with people and you didn't have things that were like on your food plan and things like that. You had to order something from a restaurant. Did, did, um, did you have to call in? Calling people. Uh, well, first of all, Bria, restaurants are not dangerous places unless I'm going to one that is uh, frequented by uh, ISIS members or something. They're not dangerous places. If I'm in fit spiritual condition, I can go anywhere. I can do anything. And if I'm in a restaurant, at the very least, if I can say this to the waiter, you have lettuce in the back? Thanks. You have a ch- chicken breast? Or- yeah. Put that on there, and I'll put some mustard on it, and whatever you charge me, you charge me. If they don't, I can eat before, I can eat after, I can do what I need to do. I can do what I need to do. But restaurants, bars, whoopee parties, whatever, I've always wanted to go to a whoopee party. I was never quite sure what that is. But the bottom line is is that I, I, there's no place that's really dangerous if I'm in fit spiritual condition. I have to advocate for myself. I don't have to order pecan pie just because everyone else is. And when I'm in fit spiritual condition, I don't want to order anything like that at all. So I, my strong advice is work the steps, work the steps, and you will find no danger in these places at all whatsoever. We just got through going through this thing, and it, it says very, very simply, and we've ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, for by this time, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil as if from a hot seat. 
and I hope that answers it. Thanks, Bria. Thank you, Bria. And Carol G., your turn. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, Harlan. It's Carol G. Recovered Good morning, Carol. Good morning, Harlan. Thank you so much for your wonderful share. Um, I mean, the mother in my, uh, the mother in me, has still got heartache. I'm so honoured by your transformation. Um, my question: um, We hear a lot about, well, I do, about if it's hysterical, it's historical. Um, how do you respond when somebody calls repeatedly with the same, what seems like trivial spot check, and yet? Their reaction is really emotional, but worse than that, they seem to leave the call repeatedly with the same self-reliant fear than they did in the first place. With all your experience, what do you signpost them to do next in the big book, and what action would you take? Thank you. Okay. You're very welcome, Carol. It's, number one, wonderful to hear your voice. Number two, thanks for this question, because it's one that I was hoping somebody would ask. What I do when I see patterns coming up when I see the same resentment coming up, the same thing coming up, the first thing I want to say to that person is, maybe we need to do a four-step on this. Number two, I ask them this question. Do you really want to be rid of this resentment? Are you really willing to let go of this resentment? Yes, your husband, your wife, your next-door neighbor, your boss, whatever it is, they are wicked people, whatever it is. But what is the payoff to this resentment that keeps coming up? And the payoff to that resentment is I don't have to take responsibility for my own life. Because if I've got you to blame, then I can justify eating and I can justify being miserable. And God, I love self-pity. Oh, self-pity. Oh, my God. It's euphoric. Poor me. <laughs> If I could bottle self-pity, I would knock heroin, crack. I would knock every other illegal drug off the market. And we get addicted to it because we don't have to take responsibility for our own life. And this is what I point out to people in as gentle a way as I possibly can. But thanks, Carol, for the question. Love hearing your voice. Thank you, Carol. Jody EQ, you're up. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Jody EQ. I'm in California. Grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater. Thank you, Harlan, once again for your amazing story and your amazing passion. It's clearly your life's work. Um, my question had to do with step 11, the nightly reviews. If I okay. Several ten steps throughout the day. Okay. What do I do at night? What do you do at night? Well, it says very simply, when we retire at night, we constructively review our day. Notice that the word constructively is in there. In other words, a hammer to your own head is not one of the tools of recovery. We can be very, very hard on ourselves. So it says constructively review our day. When Were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Do we owe an apology? Why are these things in there? Because the only way I learn is through repetition. And when the big book wants to tell me something, it doesn't tell it to me once. It tells it to me many, 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 many times. Because every one of us is a rebellious, sensitive person. We are rebellious. We are sensitive. And Bill knew this. 
And the first 100 knew that we are rebellious and we are sensitive. And he knew that the only thing we would pay attention to is repetition. And then I, I, you know, it says the rest of it, have we kept something to ourselves which should be discussed with another person at once? Step five. Will we kind and loving toward all? Love and tolerance of others is mentioned in step 10. What could we have done better? Again, when it says what could we have done better, a hammer to your own head is not one of the tools of recovery. <clears throat> Excuse me. What could we have done better? Were we thinking of ourselves most of the time? Or were we thinking of what we could do for others, of what we could pack into the stream of life? But we must be careful not to drift into worry, remorse, or morbid reflection, for that would diminish our usefulness to others. After making our review, we ask God's forgiveness and inquire what corrective measures should be taken. In other words, Jody, what have I done for other people today? Have I been of service today? Was my day a day when I looked around and said, what can I suck out of the marrow of life? Did I try to manipulate people, places, and things to dance the way I want them to dance, or was I service, of service to other people? And that's what it is. And that's your step 11 review. It's repetition and asking the question, what have I done? What does it say in step 10? We resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. What does it say in step 11? What have we done to pack into the stream of life? We are scared, rebellious, and sensitive. Thanks for your question, Jody. Thank you. Anne-Marie M. <sighs> Thank you. This is Anne-Marie M. in South Carolina. Thanks, both of you, for your um, being here this morning. Harlan, have you ever... Um, <clears throat> had somebody bother you or I'm sure you've had somebody bother you or something happened during the day and you think to yourself, well, that's not that big of a deal. I don't need to do a 10 step and um, brush it off. Um, I guess I tend to do that and wonder what's, what's important enough to do a 10 step. And so my question is, what do you do if you, think that way, well, I really don't need to be bothered with this. I can, you know, I can, um, you know, this is kind of ridiculous. You know, somebody cut me off. So big deal, you know. Anyway. If I'm thinking about it to that extent, therein lies the question, Anne-Marie, therein lies the answer. If I'm thinking about that person that cut me off or wouldn't go on a date with me or wouldn't let me have their Lamborghini or whatever, if I'm thinking about that, then I need to do the step. Therein lies the question. Therein lies the answer. What am I, what am I worried about? You know, I've never been to the doctor yet. And he looked over his medical chart and said, Harlan, I think you should cut back on your 10 steps. <laughs> he never said to me, I think you shouldn't be sponsoring so many people. He never said to me, I don't think you should be going to so many meetings. They've never said that to me in my entire life. But what they've said to me many, many times is, don't eat so many Kit Kat bars. Don't eat so many Baby Ruth bars. Because the minute I start to justify these emotions, Anne-Marie, I'm going to be looking down the business end of a damn Kit Kat bar. And that's where this disease will take me. After all my years in recovery, I will be looking down the business end 
of a Kit Kat bar. And before you know it, they're going to take off my toe, then my foot, and then my leg, and then they're going to put me in the cemetery. And that's how this illness kills. Thanks for your question, Anne-Marie. Thank you. Harlan, would you like, do you have time for a few more questions? I will, I will stay as long as you want me to stay. I'm here to serve. Well, thank you very much. All right, who else has a question for Harlan this morning? It's our one-time mute. Hi, this is Sonia G. Sonia G. Okay, hold on one minute, Sonia. Anyone else? Good morning, Mary Lee from Oregon. I have a question. Mary Mary Lee. Okay, anyone else? Eileen M. Eileen M. Who else? Okay, great opportunity to ask questions. Okay, let's start with these. Let's start with Sonia. Go ahead. Hi, thank you so very much. Um, I wanted to ask a question about texting 10 steps. And I just wanted to get your, um, I just wanted to ask you if you think that texting uh, 10 steps is just as effective as actually speaking. No, I don't. I don't I don't think it's as effective. I think that when I actually have to call you and talk to you, then I am less into myself. I'm 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 I love to isolate. I am okay. by my nature an isolator. I am by my nature someone that doesn't want to to face the music. And I find Sonia that when I actually have to talk to the person, I may have to hear some things I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear some of these things. So I need to do it the old-fashioned way. I need to make the call. Texting is certainly better than doing nothing, but I have to hear what this person has to say. I hope that answers it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Sonia. Mary Lee. Good morning, Harlan. Good morning, Mary Lee. Joy. my question is someone that's fairly new in program and um, the self-pity, is there a, a, a gentle way of, um, of, a, of rooting out that self-pity or, or addressing mm-hmm. that self-pity? Yep. Oh, boy, we got a way. It's called Work the Steps. <laughs> Do you have the blue book called Alcoholics Anonymous? Oh, I, I do. They don't. Good. Then you've got everything you'll ever need. You've got everything right at your disposal that you'll ever need. Now we'll plug in a sponsor, a recovered sponsor, and we'll plug in some meetings, and you're good to go. And that will be everything you will ever need in your entire life to get you out of yourself and into the sunlight of the spirits. And let me tell you something, Mary Lee, this is the greatest way of life imaginable. There is no greater way of life. Do I have all the money I want to have? Absolutely not. Do I wish I had a girlfriend? Do I wish I was married again? Yeah. Do I wish I was the the first baseman for the club? Yes. Yes. However, 
this is the greatest way of life imaginable. And we come in here and we're in tremendous pain. Work these steps. Challenge your higher power. Let him whisper on the remaining ember that is still red in your heart and let it burst into flames. And you will find that the greatest joy in your life ever is in helping other people recover. There is no greater way of life than is in that blue book called Alcoholics Anonymous. And that will, that will make it so that you can overcome anything with God's help. Thanks, Mary Lee, for the question. Harlan, my question was someone is doing a 10th step with me and they can't seem to get out of the um, self-pity. Ask them, do they want to? Do you want to recover? There are people who do not want to recover that are calling people all the time on these and they feel like unless you actually tell them, yes, Joe is a jerk. Yes, Mary is a witch that unless you're going to tell them that, they're not happy with your answer. Those are people who do not want to recover. Remember it says on page 58, if you want what we have, if you want what we have, not if you don't want what we have, if you want what we have, and you're ready to go to any length to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. But the desire must come from enormous, tremendous, debilitating pain. Maybe they haven't suffered enough yet. Stay out of their way. Stay out of their way. And the food will beat them back into a state of reasonableness. Thanks, Mary Lee. Eileen, I think something? Hi. Yes, Eileen. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Leah. Hi, Harlan. This is Eileen M. from New Hampshire. Thank you so Hi. much for your share. I, I, I appreciate the thoroughness of the instructions that you've outlined for doing step 10. I, I need the repetition of hearing that. Um, I was just thinking, last week I made a 10-step call, and I called five people, and no one was home. And um, I'm thinking maybe in the future I could just say, I could just leave a message and say, you know, hey, can you call me back? I really need to do a 10-step. Because I'm Mm -hmm. thinking about what someone shared of having, like, a very busy work life. And, Mm -hmm. you know, what do you do in that case? So you've got to, you you take a break from work and you're making five calls or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. However however many calls it takes to get someone. Okay. Um, Do you have anything Um, to, anything about that? I have to develop a God squad. Now, I'm very lucky. I work from home and I work for me. I work for myself. I own the company. But other people do not. Other people do not have the kind of flexibility that I have. So what I need to do and what I would tell you to do is start developing a time-sensitive and recovery-sensitive God squad. And what I mean by that is there are people that are available at different times. Some of us, like me, are very early morning people. I start taking calls before 4 o'clock in the morning. I'm a very early person. I have a German shepherd that keeps me to task. She's unrelenting. She'll say, hey, get up now. She doesn't want to hit the snooze button. She demands I get up at a certain time, and she's looking at me now. She knows I'm talking about her. But the bottom line is, is that now I have people Now, I have a a friend of mine who lives in northern Virginia, and she's a night eater, and she has a problem with night eating. 
So she has to develop a group of people in earlier, like California, Arizona, Nevada, whatever, so that she can call them when it's like 1 o'clock in the morning her time where they're earlier and they're still up. So common sense and practice will show you how to develop that God squad of people who are more available than other people. And if you want to badly enough, then I mean, there's no stopping you. Okay. This is, this is really helpful. Thank you, Harlan. No problem. Anything thank else? You, thank you, Eileen. Well, just a reminder that the member contact list uh, you know, has people from all different uh, time zones and wraps the globe. So that should make your efforts a little bit easier. All right, who else has a question for Harlan this morning? Star one to unmute. <clears throat> Devora S. from New Jersey. Devora S. Anyone else? That's Go ahead, boss. That's it, boss. Effie, Effie from Boston? Betsy. Betsy, B-E-T-S-Y. Got it. Anyone else? Elizabeth F.D. Elizabeth. Okay. Anyone else? Mary Carolina. Say it again, please. Donna from Mary <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's like herding cats. Okay, Devora S., go ahead, please. Go ahead. Harlan, thank you so much. That was very, very powerful. Um, I have a question for you on how did you um, do your fourth-step resentment with God after all the suffering that you went through with your parents and the Holocaust and all that, and then actually go to God for healing? Um, the same way anyone else does, I follow the instructions in the big book. But it, was, it wasn't until I wanted to recover, until my desire was so strong to recover, that I was able to let things go. I know that there is a God, and my, my um, murder and mayhem was not Holocaust. It was pre-Holocaust, but that's, uh, that doesn't matter. But the bottom line is, excuse me, the bottom line is I have to have a desire. And what step? do I really want to lean on in that? And that is step two, that I have a God in my life, that I have a power greater than myself. And when I have a power greater than myself, I can leave retribution to him. I can leave retribution to God. The warehouse of things that I will never understand is astronomically big. There, there are universes which I will never understand how someone comes into a home and murders a six-month-old baby or murders somebody or does the murder and mayhem that was done. I will never understand that. I will never know why certain babies are born healthy and certain babies are born with cancer. I will never know why somebody takes a gun and kills somebody else. But what I need to know is, that in this world that we live in, in order for there to be good, there must be bad. In order for there to be love, there must be indifference. And so that it is not up to me to understand these things. It is not up to me to know this. I just follow the prescribed procedure in the book, and things work out just fine. Thanks, Devorah. Thank you. I hope that answers that. Thanks. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Betsy. 
Betsy from Good morning. Um, very timely message for me today. Um, I, I think I kind of already know the answer, but I just felt the need to ask. Um, yesterday, I was just, I could not put my finger on it, but I was just feeling extremely unsettled. Mm-hmm. And I I didn't know what to do. I isolated, which I know is not ideal. Um, and I think as I've been listening to you, I think what it was was self-pity, one of my defects. Mm-hmm. And and how simple it was that you just described that you stop and you ask God to take those away. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know, I guess I, I'm just figuring that out right this minute <laughs> or right when I heard you um, talking. Mm-hmm. And um, it's so simple mm-hmm. that I don't know why I make it complicated. But I I, I guess what I'm saying is, I didn't need to understand why I felt that way. I just had to understand the feeling and then go to my higher power. Thank you. That's it. Thanks, Betsy. Thanks for the question. What do I do when I feel unsettled? What do I do when I feel disconnected? I triple my efforts at doing a gratitude list first and then service to other people. Because when I feel unsettled, Betsy, that means that I'm worried too much about am I going to get mine? Where's mine? Where's mine? Where's mine? I need to have that feeling in my soul that I have been of service to other people. This is the absolute necessity of life is to be of service. We come from the Oxford group movement. We, somebody's unmuted with a dog barking. We come from the Oxford group movement. The Oxford group movement, excuse me, were people that, feeling that they wanted to rekindle their enthusiasm for first century Christianity. Enthusiasm. There's a good word. comes from the Greek, entheos, from God. But what did they do? They were of service to other people. From one end of this book to the other, it talks about service. Dr. Silkworth calls it an altruistic movement. Bill Wilson talks about in his story that when all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic would save the day. Other parts of the book says service to others is the foundation stone of my recovery. And the reason that I was born is on the top of page 77 where it says our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. I could go on and on with examples, but you get the point. What have I done for somebody else with no expectation of return, and I will feel good immediately? Thanks for your question, Betty. Thank you. Elizabeth, your turn. Hi, it's Elizabeth F.D. from Virginia. I think that my question is in the same I'm going to get the same answer, which is to go and be of service. I was, my question was, when, so my husband died, and I have bouts of intense grief where I just miss him. I just miss him, and um, it's not a resentment, but um, I guess it could be self-pity, but I, I, call it grief and I and I miss him. And I think what I'm hearing is I need to get up and go be of service to somebody else and mm-hmm. do that in in his honor and and mm-hmm. and by missing him do something for somebody else because mm-hmm. 
it's such a and I've heard I've heard Leah say, Yeah, you'll you'll get good at your feelings. You'll feel I'm not sure exactly how you said it, but you'll feel angry really well, you'll feel sad really well. And um anyway, I'll stop. That's my question okay. and I Thanks, Elizabeth, and I'm sorry about your husband. Um, I hope he's I hope he's resting in peace. The most important thing I can do when I'm sad is is own it. That's okay. Sometimes I am sad. I I, I was sad this week for sure. I I you know, but the bottom line is is that sometimes it, it's okay to be sad. It's just what am I going to do with it now? What am I going to do with this feeling that I have? And I have to take action. I have to take action. And if I'm feeling really sad because my husband died or I'm feeling really sad because of whatever, then I need to be of service to someone else. I need to get out of myself. Uh And that's the most important thing I can do. Six years ago, I got divorced. I didn't want this divorce. Six years ago, my wife told me, or my then wife told me, that she had fallen in love with someone through through her boss and that she wanted a divorce. Very, very sad. But I never put food in my mouth. I never put food in my mouth as a result of it because I just kept tripling my effort to be of service to others. And I never worked this program so hard in my life. And I made it through that time period of sadness through service to other people. And I will continue to gut down and do service when things just don't go my way. And it's from one end of this book to the other. But thank you for the question, Elizabeth. And again, I'm very sorry about your husband. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. FD. Was it? Was there a Donna? There is a Donna. I wrote it down. <laughs> Donna. Star one uh, to unmute. Hi. Okay, uh, I just got unmuted. Sure. Um, my question is, I'm just on the fourth step right now, working the fourth step with my sponsor. And and the tenth step, I have worked up a network of people I could call. But do they have to, like, know your whole history so they can understand what you're saying? No, 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 no. I don't have to know much at all. Really and truly, one of the biggest mistakes people make with fourth steps is, they have to tell me the whole history of when I met this person. and oh, I don't really need to know that. I just need the headline. Here's the headline I need. I'm mad at Bozo. <laughs> I don't care why. I really don't. It makes, it, it, it makes no never mind to me why you're mad at Bozo. All I need to know is you're mad at Bozo. Okay. What's the first defect coming? What, you know, what's the second? What's the, what's your part? Your part will come out when we examine these defects of character. Now, we own your part. You're going to make amends. You're going to, you're going to ask God to remove the defects. Excuse me. You're going to discuss it with another person. You're going to make amends quickly if you've harmed Bozo. Did you call Bozo names? Did you yell at Bozo? Did you, did you flatten his tires? Whatever you did. Now we're going to resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. I don't need to know when you met Bozo. I don't have to to know any of that. At that point, it's useless information because it it has nothing to do with the here and now. Okay? Okay. That makes it a lot easier. Thanks, Donna. Thank you. It's good to hear your voice. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Donna. Who else has a question this morning?
Anyone else? Star one to unmute. Mary H. Sue G. Mary H. Sue G. Carolyn S. H. Carolyn S. H. This will be the final invitation. Okay. Mary H., go ahead. Hi, Harlan. It's Mary H., recovering compulsive overeater. Good morning. Good morning. Um, <laughs> so my question is, how, how um, can you give some suggestions on how to be the recipient of a tenth step to listen to one? And I ask this because my sometimes my um, inclination is to want to you know, somehow say good work and, you know, I don't know. I just want to know how to really just listen and how to respond. It says very simply, here's the instructions on how to do it and and the instructions for how to listen to it are in the same words. It says here very simply, it says continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. Listen to the person talk about what happened very briefly. All you need is a headline. Then go through the defects of character with them. Where were you selfish? Where were you dishonest? Where were you resentful, angry? What's the fear? Leave fear to the end. That drives in the bus. Then it says, help them ask God at once to remove them. In their way, let them pray. Let them, if they want you to do it with them, do it. If they want to do the six and seven step, or the seven step prayer, there's no six. If if they want you to do the seven step prayer with them, do it. It's on page 76. No big deal. Then instruct them to make amends quickly if they've harmed anyone and then tell them to resolutely turn their thoughts to someone they can help and remind them that love and tolerance of others is our code. Yeah. And this is something that I do frequently. I will thank people and say, hey, thanks for helping God keep me out of the food for one more day. Let them know that you appreciate them calling you. Let them know that they're part of the fabric of your recovery. Let them know that the most important person in the world right now is them because that is the first line of defense between me and all the payday bars at the grocery store on the corner of my house. I hope that answers it, Mary. Thanks. It does. Thanks. Thank you. Sue G. Hi, Harlan. Um, Thanks. I really appreciated your story especially. Um. My question is, how do we know when something makes us sad that we can take to God and resolve and then call to help someone, and when it's a 10th step and we need to well, they're pretty call much someone? The same, they're pretty much the same thing, what you're describing, Sue. So I appreciate the question. It's pretty much the same thing. If you're so moved emotionally, that you're questioning whether you should do a 10-step, therein lies the question, therein lies the answer. Do the 10-step. Okay. You have nothing to lose. They're free. (laughs) Thank you. They're free. They're free and they're easy to do. Thanks, Sue. And our final question, thank you, Sue. Our final question this morning comes from Carolyn S.H., Good morning. Thank you, Leah. Thank you so much, Harlan, for your You're welcome. service. It was great great meeting you in Boston, Carolyn. Yes, ditto. Right back yes. at you. Yeah. Um, my question, now, I apologize. I wasn't able to hear your presentation 
uninterrupted, so you may have answered this, um, but maybe this will give you an opportunity to answer it more fully. I'm, I've discovered that there are days where the resentments pile up within minutes. Like I'm, mm. it's the mood I'm in or something. Like mm-hmm. I'll read an email, get a resentment. Read another email, get a resentment, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've discovered like I'm trying to find a way to do kind of a class action step 10, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I'm, and sometimes I can just point to a fear and do a fear turnaround, you know. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. what do you do in that instance and what you would Well, first say. of all, uh, first of all, they have a name for people where resentments pile up on them rather quickly. You know what they're called, Carolyn? Addicts? Nope. Human beings. They're called human beings. That's the name they have for people who get resentments and fears. And the fact of the matter that you're getting these resentments is really good because it shows that you're not in the food. You load me up with some brownies and you load me up with some cake or a Kit Kat bar and I don't resent anything or anyone. It is when you take away that food that these feelings are raw and naked and will burst to the surface. So that's a good thing that you're feeling your feelings. The next thing is do your 10 steps. Do your 10 steps. Do your gratitude list. Make sure you're on your 11 steps. Are you doing your morning meditation? Are you doing your nighttime review? This is where that that raw sensitivity comes from is in the cessation of doing these things. It is vital that I remember that this is an everyday, no matter what program. I don't want to tell myself, well, I'm on vacation. I'm going to Bozeman, Montana this week, coming weekend to do a big book study. Well, I don't have to do this, and I don't have to do baloney, baloney. I have to do this stuff every single day without fail. So I have to ask myself, how am I doing on my daily reviews? How am I doing on my 10 steps? And that's really the answer for me. And how am I doing on my gratitude list? Am I getting out of myself? Am I being of service to other people? never gets away from those axiom truths. It never gets away from those principles, those postulates. Am I praying? Have I brought God into the equation? Am I looking at those emails before prayer and meditation? Because it doesn't say in step 11 that we check email first. It says on awakening. It doesn't say after you've checked your emails. It doesn't say after you've done this or done that. It says upon or on awakening. So I have to, now, of course, I go to the bathroom. I don't know how your bladder is, but I go to the bathroom first. But after I go to the bathroom and say good morning to Emma, my dog, I hit the big book and I do my on awakening part. So those are the things that will clear that up for me immediately. Thanks, Carolyn. Thank you, Harlan. Very helpful. Good to meet you. Thank you, Carolyn. Thanks to everybody who asked questions this morning. And, of course, thank you so much, Harlan, for your beautiful and thorough presentation. You are greatly appreciated. So, so much so. How are you? Thank you for your service, Leah. My pleasure. My pleasure. Let's close our meeting from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. 
God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.